0: I was in Papillion for a baby shower for my buddy Brad and his wife, Taylor, and I was driving home from Papillion to Lincoln, and our 2003 Pontiac uh, Pontiac Grand Am, in all of its glory and all of its might, just, I'm on the highway, and it completely starts to putter out and dies on me, and so I have to pull it off to the shoulder, and I pull it off off to the side of the road, 45 miles from home, sun is setting, I'm alone. And obviously the first person that I call when something like this happens is my father-in-law because I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm not going to act like I know what I'm doing. And so I call him. And he gives me all these different options of how to get myself back to Lincoln. Uh, he tells me to call Kelsey and run it past her what to do. So I call her, and we kind of figure out what we're going to do. Uh, and we're running through different options: Do we get the Pontiac back to Lincoln? Do we just get it towed to a mechanic shop to uh, to a mechanic shop in Papillion uh, so that the towing costs are less? Do we just pretend that there's nothing wrong with it, which is what I wanted to do. Um, But we are forced to make a decision about what to do. We are either going to accept uh, the help that was offered to us, so the help of my amazing father-in-law, the help of a tow truck, or the help of a mechanic, or we are going to just turn down and reject the help. Uh, and try to find find our own way to fix the problem, uh, and just so none of you worry, we called a tow truck, we made it home last night, forgot that it was daylight savings. It was a super late late night. But uh, as we 're driving home, we debriefed kind of all that happened and how we had to make a decision that uh, truly we had no choice um, that we had to decide we couldn 't just sit idle about the car we couldn 't just be impartial, and once we knew the information about the dead car and the forty five mile distance back home, we had to make a call one way or the other. And funny enough, as we were talking about this, it reminded her and I of this passage today that we're studying in church. And we're just laughing about this, Luke, Luke 20, verses 1 through 18. Um, and I just want to preface that the dead car on the side of the road doesn't perfectly parallel to this parable of the wicked tenants. But the point I want you to see is that we are forced to make a decision, that there's no option to be neutral. We have to respond. So the sermon in a sentence is that we can't be neutral with Jesus. It's not a thing. It's not an option. Uh, we're gonna see that we either accept him or we reject him. And so there's this grand drama that's building into our passage. Um, if, if you're there, there's this full picture that I want us to see. Uh, we'll have a better chance of grasping onto what Jesus is saying in these verses if we can see what's going on and have it hit our hearts today um, and for this week. And so there are these eye-catching moments where Jesus, he's showing, he's flexing his authority leading into our passage. Just three events. Um, if you flip like one page to the left to Luke 19, the start of it, Uh, This is Austin's favorite character in the Bible, uh, Wee Little Man Zacchaeus, short guy. Austin relates with him. Uh, He's this tax collector that literally everyone hates. And Jesus, in his authority, he saves him. Uh, Verse 7, the crowd, they grumble. They're upset about this. Luke 19, 7, and they say that Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The second event, Luke 19, 28 through 44, Jesus, the one who sits with sinner, he arrives in Jerusalem And as we saw last week in Austin's sermon, there's like this king-like welcome that's happening. Psalm 118, 26 is being sung. Bless is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem with this meek yet clear authority. Third event, then right up before our passage, Luke 19, 45-48 it takes us to one of the most well-known events in Jesus' life. You've probably heard of it. Uh, Jesus, he comes into this temple court. He sees people selling things in the middle of this holy space, and with authority, he drives out those who were doing this. So he's showing that what the people thought was okay it was actually wrong, and that the religious leaders don't actually run the sacred place, but that he does. And while all of this is happening, event by event, Jesus is acting with authority, and there's this little group that was growing more and more frustrated with Jesus. So verse 47 says this, The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, so they're these religious leaders, they're seeking to destroy Jesus. Uh, this little group wants the power and control. They want the authority. So they're trying to get rid of Jesus. And with all that going on, we, we see our passage, this little group of religious leaders have this issue of authority. Luke 20, verses 1 and 2 he comes in and just says this one day as Jesus he's teaching the people in the temple and he's preaching the gospel that's a marvelous sight that is beautiful that's simple gospel-rooted ministry uh, these religious leaders they come up to him and they say to him this staggering question tell us by what authority you do these things so saving sinners being welcomed to Jerusalem like a king clearing out our temple by what authority do you do these things and who is it that gave you this authority?" These people are upset that Jesus is acting as if he has some authority because it threatens their own. Here, the religious leaders are confronting Jesus in front of this crowd of normal, everyday people. And once they did this, things would have frozen. Every, everyone is watching. Everyone. The crowd, they begin to whisper to each other, did, did those religious leaders just confront Jesus about his authority? Yeah, I think they did. What? And they're all just watching. Eyes are locked on Jesus as he's about to give an answer to their question. And what does Jesus do in our passage? He doesn't even answer their question. It's brutal. You're like, just, just give him something. But he actually asks a question back to him. Verse four, he says this Now tell me, was the baptism of a John from heaven or from man? So it's like Kelsey and I's broken car fiasco. You could ask us, well, Did you accept the help or not? Jesus is asking them, did you accept John the Baptist being from God to point people to me, or did you reject him? And Jesus knew that they rejected John the Baptist, and by rejecting the guy who points to him, they rejected Jesus himself. And so Jesus, he's revealing their motives, and then we kind of see these religious leaders go in their holy huddle, verses 5 through 7, and it's hilarious. They discuss it among themselves. They say, well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? If we say from man, all the people are going to stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Now look at verse 7. This is key. This is massive right here. Verse 7. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. They answered that they, that they did not know where it came from. So even though Jesus knew where these guys stood, they stumbled out an answer to seem as if they were on neutral ground. About John the Baptist's authority and about Jesus' authority. Being the promised Savior, they act as if they're impartial to it, uh, but not to decide about Jesus is to decide. You don't get away with being impartial. Similar to our broken Pontiac, it wouldn't matter how impartial or idle we were about the situation. We are either going to accept what is true, or we're going to just reject it. And the car, the car is still be sitting in Papillion right now. We couldn't sit neutral about it. That be making a decision in itself. And there's a great danger for us in that today. We either accept Jesus. Or we reject him. Uh, We're never on neutral ground. Jesus, he requires a response from all of us. All of us in this room. Both for the Christian who professes Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I promise also for the person who's on the fence about Jesus. For the Christian, uh, we've come to accept Jesus theologically and philosophically. But if we're honest, we probably reject him functionally far too often. I know I do. Uh, We become idle in our fight against sin. We sing songs and worship together and we hear the word of God preached every Sunday. And it's sparking convictions in our hearts like, oh yeah, I should really forgive that person. Yes, I should work with more integrity in my job. Yes, I must wash my mouth and the jokes that I make. Yes, I should stand for unity and not spark division on Facebook. And yet we seem to lose those impressions, those those convictions. We let them slip away. And we reject Jesus functionally. Uh, this isn't neutral ground for us. This is rejection. And for the one who seems to be on the fence about Jesus, it's, it's likely um, that you've sat with many questions for many years. Uh, you've had hard, terrible things happen to your life. Maybe you've sat sermon after sermon and formed more and more thoughts about Christianity. But you're at a standstill. And you might be thinking, well, it seems as if the other religions are also doing good things. Sure, Jesus was a good guy, and I respect him a lot. But I got nothing wrong with him. But I'm not going to go all in. I'm going to keep doing life uh, how I want to do it and see what happens at the end of, all, end of it all. And personally, I, I was there. I've been there. I've had all those thoughts before. But this passage, it calls us to something otherwise. Something completely different where we might think that being idle or impartial is okay and maybe even safe. It's not. To be neutral is to reject Jesus. And soon we'll see in our passage later on um, the consequence of that rejection. And so after this kind of little question versus question moment that's happening between Jesus and the religious leaders, he moves into telling this parable in verse 9. At this moment, everyone... The religious leaders and the normal, everyday people would have been hooked on what Jesus is about to say. So just painting the picture for you, what's happening. In Luke 29, we see this parable in response to the religious leaders. Verse 9, read it with me. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that, They would give him some fruit, some of the fruit of the vineyard. So there's this man, this owner, this landlord, just to kind of put it into perspective. It's like if a guy were to own a house in Lincoln here, uh, but he took off to Phoenix because Lincoln is 70 degrees on a Monday and on a Tuesday it's 25 degrees and snowing. So he's out of there and he rents out this house to some people and he sends a friend to collect rent. So just modern day, that's what's going on here. And so the people in the crowd, they're cool with it. They understand it. As Jesus is telling it, it's landing. Like, okay, this makes sense. Everything is normal. And Jesus, he then continues with the story. Verse 10 takes a shift. He says, but, making eye contact with everybody, but the tenants beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. And now the crowd, they lean in, their eyes widen. And they show a look of shock. This parable has taken a hard turn. And if it wasn't unsettling enough, Jesus keeps going. Verse 11 and 12, even more disturbing. And the owner sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And the owner sent yet a third now the crowd can't believe it. It's shocking to even hear that there was a second one sent, but let alone a third. They're whispering to each other, no, not this poor third servant. Please no. Jesus, verse 13, or Jesus continues on as he hears him whispering, yes, you guessed it, that servant. Also, they wounded and cast him out. And then verse 13, the climax of this story says this, then the owner of the vineyard, he says, what shall I do? what shall I do about all this going on? That's a pretty good question. All of us, I know we're in church right now, so we might not be able to say it, but I'm just going to say it. All of us, we need to get held back so we don't go crazy on these people because this is wild. But the owner, he says this. This is his answer of what he shall do. He says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And now the whispers from a from the crowd they rise to interjections no this is unheard of the owner would send his son on a perhaps that perhaps they will respect him the owner is going to send his own son on that level of confidence and see friends Jesus he tells this parable with vivid imagery to show that he is a beloved son who is sent by the father Jesus answers the religious leaders' questions about authority from verse 2 by saying that the Father has all authority and that the Father has sent Jesus with this authority. And Jesus is depicting the rejection that is about to happen to him in three days from that little group that is standing in the crowd, the religious leaders. Jesus isn't talking about a group that's out there. He's talking about a group that's right here. And now Jesus Uh, I, when I was studying this, it's obvious that, maybe it's obvious to us that he is the beloved son in this story. Uh, Maybe when you saw it on the TV screens, heard it read, you hear beloved son, it might spark to you that that is Jesus. Um, But if we're honest, it is not obvious as to who the servants, the tenants, and what the vineyard is all about. I did not know that until I studied the text. And so I read that the, to the crowd and the religious leaders uh, who were just scheming about how to destroy Jesus in Luke nineteen forty-seven that we read, it would have been plain as day to them. Plain as day as to what Jesus is saying. Why? The religious leaders knew the scriptures better than anyone. And as a matter of fact, this parable shows that even though they knew all the scriptures, they didn't know God. They rejected him. And that's a staggering thing that's all too common for us, I think, that's my story. I knew of God, but I didn't know God. And that didn't make me neutral. That had me rejecting God. And in their sharp knowledge of the scriptures, these religious leaders, they're hearing this parable said, and Isaiah 5-1 would come to mind for them quickly. Isaiah 5-1, it just speaks of this vineyard and that God has authority over it. The vineyard represents Israel, God's people, and the owner of the vineyard, is God. It's not anyone else. So he has the authority, not the religious leaders. And as for the obedient, faithful servants in the parable, the servants, the ones who keep being sent by the owner and being wounded by the tenants, uh, the religious leaders would be quick to think of guys like Moses and Jeremiah, these prophets, these messengers that God sends to point them to the coming of Jesus Christ. And like the servants in this parable, the prophets they were not re- well received. Uh, Jeremiah seven twenty five through twenty six, the Lord he says this of, of his people: I have persistently sent all my servants the prophets to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. This is so challenging for us today, like sermon by sermon, message by message, Bible study by Bible study. The longer we remain neutral to either one. Conviction of fighting sin as a Christian. Or two, full surrender and turning to Jesus for the one who is on the fence. We're at a great risk of hardening our hearts to God. A great risk. And now that Jesus really has the attention of his audience, they're all eyes on him, even more locked in. Verse 14, he says, continues the parable. But when the tenants, when they saw the son... They said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. You see the point that Jesus is making, that he's showing them. At John 19, 16 through 18, it tells us that Jesus, he's taken outside of the city gates of Jerusalem and he's crucified, and he's killed. The religious leaders want all the control over the people, over their own lives, so they reject Jesus. Their sin would grow so much from this point on that they would actually have the Son of God killed. If you want an interesting study, go through the rest of Luke from this point that in our passage to the end of it and see how the sin of the chief priests describes the, the elders, how it grows and grows and grows. Unchecked sin only grows more. So servant one is beaten. Servant two is beaten. Servant three is wounded. The prophets were sent and all of them were turned away. And now the son. The son is sent and he suffers greatly to the point of death. He was a suffering servant as prophesied about in Isaiah 53. And Jesus in the midst of this story, he asked a rhetorical question. Verse 15. says, when the owner... Well, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to the tenants? And as a, any public speaker, they love to ask a rhetorical question that everybody knows the answer to. And everybody does know the answer in this. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 16, he will come and he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So the owner is going to come back and he's going to destroy the tenants who have done wicked, wicked things. And he's going to give this vineyard to others. We either accept or we reject Jesus. We can't remain neutral. And there is a consequence for that rejection. Jesus shows that for those who reject him, they will be destroyed. And what's the response of this little group, this, re, these religious leaders? They hear all this. They hear it said, what the owner will do to the tenants. And they say in verse 16, surely not. They just shout out, surely not. That's not going to happen. This would never happen. All the side eyes from the crowd are like, are you kidding me? Yes, it would. Verse 17, Jesus, he goes on to, from addressing the entire crowd, and his body shifts, and he looks directly at these religious leaders with his piercing gaze, and he asks them this question, what then is this that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? What in the world does that mean? What is he getting at here? Jesus, he's quoting Psalm 118.22. And remember, as Austin preached last week, Jesus and his king-like entrance into Jerusalem, they're singing Psalm 118.26. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then boom, right here, right after telling this parable, Jesus quotes that same song. And he says, I am he. I am the, prophet, the promised one who comes in the name of the Lord. I have the authority from the Father. And I am the stone from Psalm 118 and Daniel 2 and Isaiah 8 that you have rejected that has now become the cornerstone. Uh, in building tr- projects, there, a cornerstone is foundational. It bears the weight of everything else you build around and on top of the cornerstone. And to reject uh, this cornerstone is to bring about inevitable destruction. And so Jesus then says in verse 18 that everyone, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus drives it home. This little group of religious leaders are about to fall on Jesus. But where they're plotting to get him, to stop him, to kill him, Jesus says, if you examine me, you'll get examined by me. I have the authority. See, there is no refuge from Jesus, but there is refuge in him. This song we're going to sing uh, next to uh, start worship is called Cornerstone. Um, and I like to kind of end our time just with reading the lyrics from the end of that song. At the very end of it, uh, the lyrics say this. It's beautiful. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dress in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. For the Christian uh, who has truly surrendered to Christ, my brother and sister in Christ here in this room, uh, this is true for you. Th- these lyrics, we should belt out and worship. Uh, because of Jesus' His righteousness that's been given to us, we will stand faultless before the throne of God. And this is only by God's doing. It's only by God's grace, grace through faith that we went from being, li- being like the wicked tenants to being saved by the beloved son. We're no better than the wicked tenants. All of us at one point were just like them. And so any conviction or impression that we have in our hearts this week that we receive from the Lord, would we spur on to not sit idle? We can't remain neutral in our fight against sin. We either reject Jesus or we accept him for all of our lives. And for the person who's sitting on the fence about following Jesus or not, um, in love, I hope that you see that neutrality is actually rejection. And that the consequence of that rejection is destruction. And for the Bible, it speaks in the time of now. Now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation would you see that in his authority jesus the cornerstone is where true hope is found let's pray